Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle. This is the Schwab, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. Today we're speaking with Krune Jarnu, whose name I've bastardized because he's Danish, but I didn't mean to, who is a scholar of religions coming from a kind of anthropological standpoint, I think it's fair to say, but a man who is working in culture, with culture, not so much in academe, but in the wider world of ideas on something he calls Nordic animism. Hruna, thank you so much for coming to talk to us on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's so awesome to be here. I have uh, really listened to your podcast, actually. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I've checked out some of your stuff online. You've got NordicAnimism.com and a, your Nordic Animism YouTube channel. It might be good to flesh out what you're doing more concretely. So you've got like a list of kind of interesting projects you've been working on for the last little while. Tell us about those. <laughs> Yeah, what am I do? Well, it, it kind of, I think it, my what I do kind of grew into being sort of a, organically, sort of one project kind of led to another and so on. But as an overall header, I would see it's, I would say it's possibly could be called a kind of cultural activism, basically trying to think with a traditional knowledge scholarship, the kind of way that many indigenous peoples today think about their indigenous culture. I'm kind of trying to use the same way of thinking at majority culture and then applying it to my own uh, background in Northern Europe. And then I'm trying to, 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 to popularize that. And I'm trying to sort of uh, play perspectives from that directly into culture. So I've been doing stuff like I've anchored a cultural event in Copenhagen that takes back some uh, traditional masquerading tra uh, tradition. Uh, I've uh, published work on calendar and I'm publishing every year a, a wall calendar that takes these old calendar forms back. Some of the prime stuff, it's called a runic calendar where every day around the year has this uh, runic code and <laughs> these kind of things. I launched actually a symbol that was supposed to be a, a symbol of eco-animist eco community, like a call to build human community based on kinship with others, others in the land, the raven flag. <laughs> and it, it is actually being used by eco-activists uh, around the world today. My point with that was to, to build on ancient totemic North European traditions and then try to give uh, majority eco-activists, some of that history, some of that narrative background that indigenous eco-activists have. I feel that majority eco-activists, they're sort of kind of hanging in this extremely apocalyptic present with an even more apocalyptic future. It's, it's very depressive. They don't have a history to speak with. And humans do that. They need that. Anyway, so that was part of the reason behind that, to launch this a symbol that would sort of call on on a history of connectedness, right. uh, culturally specific nature. history. I, yeah, I think so, of the um, hourglass symbol that uh, Extinction Rebellion uses. And if yes. you think about it, you know the, the symbolism there is time's almost up. The the, the sands of time are ticking or uh, yeah. falling through. But it, if anything, it looks to the future, right? It looks to like the you know it's eleven fifty nine. It's about to be midnight. We got no time. But what you're doing is looking toward uh, the past, which is a very interesting strategy. Yeah. Or I think the past needs to be empowering that drive to the future. Right. And, that, and this is also something I've been doing in, in other ways, like basically giving analysis of uh, different 
kind of elements of traditional knowledge. Say, for instance, the prophecy of the Ragnarok, which is communicated in, a, in an Eddic Viking Age poem called the Völuspar. Now, there are scholars who believe that this poem emerged as a reflection on the experience of climate change that hit Scandinavia and had extremely catastrophic effect in the 6th century. Okay. Uh, and this mean, this makes the Völuspar, in a sense, a, a, or the Ragnarok, in a sense, a, a prophecy of climate change, an analysis of how there's a rupture of connectivity in the world, and that causes everything to clash in this all-consuming state of war. So the, the, you could see it as a cautionary tale, really. And when I'm engaging this, you can say I'm engaging this as a piece of traditional knowledge that can speak to us today. So that's... Yeah, another example. Pre-Christian Scandinavia, people congregated in huge pilgrimages to regional sacred sites with eight years in between. And I've proposed a timing for how that, how these big celebrations were timed. And we launched that then into our age. And a lot of people are today now uh, celebrating what we call the Aun year of 2023, because uh, this is the year that happened uh, or where where you know, you could <laughs> use that for this year. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, this is just some examples. And then I have a YouTube channel where I'm also kind of trying to suggest, make suggestions for people that can switch their uh, or enrich their, their present understanding of sometimes very normal current culture. Like we can recover sacred fire into uh, normal European culture or beer, drinking beer, Beer as a vessel of connectivity, very parallel to the way that Native Americans think about tobacco as a vessel of connectivity that binds people together, both in very personal ways. If you and I met each other, meet each other in 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 Malmo or Copenhagen when you're going to the conference there, the first thing we're going to do is probably sit, sit around, have a beer, and say cheers, right? Mm. Or post, you know. Of course, yeah. So. So I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of spin this perspective directly into popular culture, but it sort of springs out of an academic uh, an academic endeavor to try to apply indigenous knowledge thinking and animism on majority cultural history. All right. So to give us a little bit of boring background to what you're doing, what have you actually studied? Because you clearly are from an academic background. Did you do uh, anthropology? I studied history of religions. But mm. I, I angled it very much towards anthropology. Um, I mean, you can call me an anthropologist of religion. Actually, I, I have like two trains in my background where one is sort of studying old stuff and uh, ma reading manuscripts and studying old Norse and Hebrew and these kind of things. And the other one is uh, anthropology where, where I've been working a lot in Afro-diasporic religions in Brazil. So if you think about Santeria mm. and voodoo, these sort of religions, I studied a Brazilian version, which is called Candomblé, and I did my PhD on that. And in a sense, what I'm doing now is actually, in a sense, it's actually very directly inspired by what these priestesses taught, taught me because they have what you could call a counter-modern way of building these spaces of cultural resilience where they can have these very powerful, quote-unquote, animist or 
traditional religion systems in contemporary urban spaces. And so I'm, it's not so visible in my channel, but in a sense, I'm trying to think about my own cultural background in a way that's inspired by how they think about their cultural background. Mm. And why not, right? So the, the, the anthropology has this incredible, um, what seems to me, someone who isn't trained as an anthropologist, has this incredible grab bag of cool methodological tools for approaching culture. And that's basically its strength as a, as a field. It's not really a field, but it, it has these tools and they're really cool, but it has the massive blind spot or it has had historically and as you know this blind spot has been thoroughly deconstructed by anthropologists but the blind spot of like this applies to primitive tribes and we we study primitive tribe people we don't study modern americans or modern brazilians or the japanese or whoever we you know so there's that kind of like uh ghettoization that that has happened in anthropology but i think it is falling apart and and you're obviously part of that wave of uh Let's take these methodologies and uh, turn them to an interesting place where they they totally apply, but hasn't been done yet or hasn't been yeah. done enough. Yeah, and it's interesting how some of these old trends of encasing people in certain ways are sometimes persisting. I, I sometimes meet people today who will say that European folklore is not animism, which is absolutely weird. Like... Like you can use animism as a lens to study contemporary city planning or AI algorithms, but people giving beer to a tree or a stone, that's like supposed to be somehow not animism. But I think the, re but I think the reason is actually a history of racialization where white exceptionalism dictated that we needed to have a very specific discipline for studying white people white people and that was folklore so we used anthropology on them the dark people from far away and we used folklore on ourselves right but there of course there are also overflows and interfaces but i think i think we still actually have some legacies from this weird sort of basic ra racializing organization of of, of these fields hmm. i dig what you're saying and um i think what would be really valuable at this point is to get a little bit academic for a minute, maybe I'm more on the history of religion side than on the the anthropological side. And t let's talk about what the hell animism is, because this this is a term that obviously, if you go to places where I guess you know you might get some consensus, these people are animists, and ask them, are you animists? They're going to say, what is this word? You know, so it's a made up word by academics. What is animism? How do you use it? And what's the kind of history of this term? Yes, it's. Uh like many, you know, analytical terms, it's a problematic. <laughs> the word that you, that you should always be said is problematic. <laughs> and um, animism actually started uh, by uh, basically the grand old man of cultural studies of all, Edward Bernard Tyler, for whom at the animist state of culture was the the most primitive state. Uh, before uh, we started to, to advance through different stages of cultural levels until we become a, became as advanced as Tyler's contemporary English, which he was self himself, right? <laughs> so that's, that's the origin of the term. However, this term has then been reclaimed by contemporary animist scholars. And you sometimes, like if you look up animism in, in a dictionary, you'll get an, an, an explanation a little bit, along the lines of animism is the idea that everything is animate and there's spirit 
all around or something like that. And that is not decidedly incorrect, but it's also rather imprecise. It's a little bit like if you want to describe quantum physics by saying there is energy in the world. You know, it's, it's like it's, it's rather reductive. Animism is defined today by the important British scholar Graham Harvey as the idea that there are persons in the world only some of them are human, but they all deserve respect. So when there's a person, there is an inherent imperative for some sort of respect towards that person. So that's sort of a very common use of animism today. But this can then be developed in many, many different forms and many different, so that different animisms and Different animisms will often be de defined by those landscapes in which they they live, which because so if you have a say a southern Scandinavian animism, then the elder tree plays an important role in a southern Scandinavian animism. If you have a West African Sahel belt animism, then the baobab tree plays an important role. If you have an East African animism, then coffee is an important product. If you have a North American Ojibwe animism, then it's tobacco. So animism is always very culturally specific and there are different cultural ways of paying respect. Word. And yeah. I think that makes me an Ojibwe African though, because I'm sitting here bigging up some tobacco and coffee. Conversation. <laughs> and I'm doing it totally. I do see these substances as somehow persons that I'm in an <laughs> ongoing dialogue with. Sometimes <laughs> Sometimes it's a bit of an argument. It's a bit like, guys, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have deserted my relationship with coffee, uh, unfortunately. Uh, I, I, I miss him. <laughs> I think the coffee, Denmark is a coffee culture, no? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, you never forget your first love, even if you <laughs> marry someone else. So your project is putting animism at the forefront, right? There's a yes. lot of people out there nowadays in internet land and also in countries all over the world doing, let's call it, Norse neo-paganism or heathenry or asatru or various other labels that are applied to this, trying to trying to get back to some Odin, Thor, Loki, Freya, or, you know, local equivalents of those gods and goddesses type vibe, but also practice, also trying to, like, do rituals, all this kind of stuff. That doesn't seem to me like what you're doing, or at least what you're emphasizing at all. Like the point of emphasis on animism rather than paganism is quite interesting. Well, I think animism for many pagans, I think animism can work as a very meaningful sort of language to inform their paganism. And I think today there is a huge movement in the world where people all over the world are turning towards different kinds of roots, religiosity or spirituality or land connectedness culture and so on. And and the and the move towards or the contemporary Nordic heathenry and adjacent uh, system is sort of part of that. However, I think animism has some very, very serious advantages if you want to engage, say, traditional earth-focused religiosity advantages to, say, heathenry. The problem with heathenry, I think, is that it, it tends to look to, to imagine one sort of encased distant past and want to engage that one. 
Now, if you look at that as a historian of religion, the problem with stuff like Viking Age religion is that it's really difficult to know anything about. And what we know is not necessarily something that any sane person would want to engage. Like the sacrifice described by Ibn Fadlan in yeah. Russia. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, like drugging a young woman, then gang raping her and then killing her in an absolutely repugnant way. But even let's forget that for a moment. The thing about looking at this encased distant past puts you in a sort of a methodological cognitive dissonance where you have to be a scholar all the time and you you all the time you're working with something that's extremely hypothetical and distant and there is a disconnect in that which i think is oppositional to animism so when you take an animist perspective even though vikings were animists in in, in their way you know cool you know go vikings but but then uh then when when uh, when we take animism as a lens rather than this enclosed historical context then we're we, we we're blowing the delimitation of this field to pieces and all of a sudden we can look at all kinds of things we can look at the local pastor in dartmoor who's yeah. <laughs> doing things that have some animist relation somehow in it that is perhaps a completely valid expression of a Nordic animism, defining here England as a Nordic place. Today, it, it, it is perhaps as legitimate as a, a shamanic, Odinic uh, uh, quest to find runes in, in, in the Viking Age or something like that, right? Right. So, so that opens it opens the field to a much richer engagement, much more material, and material where there are practices. If you look at the heathen religion, as it's known from sources, sagas, scholarship, and so on, the knowledge of practice, what people actually did, is extremely limited, right. and it's difficult to build anything on. Mm. Partly, for instance, like for instance, we don't want to sacrifice human beings today. Like you know, uh, just being one kind of salient <laughs> issue. But when we look at what people did a hundred years ago, right? Then it is so rich with earth-focused culture. People, uh, yeah. So I have a, a, a local example from my town, which I'm sure you is maybe tell me if this is along the lines of what you're talking about. So as you mentioned, we had a, a Church of England uh, vicar who recently retired. Shout out Reverend Paul. But uh, he he was, a let's call it a green man style of Christianity. And in our town, there is a, like a Beltane get together where everyone gets together on the common and there's music and shouting and jumping over stuff and uh, general merriment and it's all a bit kind of british folk horror neo-pagany kind of vibe if you know what i mean but there's the os so os which is a horse is a, a tradition around beltane time in some region of england i don't even know where and it's a dude who dresses up in this rather scary ugungung looking like tattered robe so his whole body is this sort of black tattered thing with with a horse skull stuck on the top painted in crazy gothic style and he's just running around being scary and he's got his, his jaws clacking this is the beltane horse now that is a genuine uh, bit of english folklore right that hasn't ever died out it seems to have presumably survived the puritans survived everything it's a local custom that 
it was never seen as something pagan or pre-Christian or whatever by the, the folks who were doing it. And what the local Beltane uh, hippie pagans have done is just seen that in a book or something and said, that's cool. Let's make an, let's make an os. And we have a Beltane os now. My buddy does it every year. He gets super into it and enters into this sort of possessed state by the spirit of the os and goes, jumps around for three hours. So here we have like a, what you might define as an animist traditional bit of folklore culture, whatever you want to call it. Maybe this term folklore, you're actually getting me to rethink it and think it's maybe just like a super racist, (laughs) exceptionalist category. But anyway, uh, this tradition is a living tradition and it's being kind of reappropriated by neo-paganism, roughly speaking. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's that's very different and very much more. It feels much more. Uh, I gotta say, real, authentic, than the scholarly reconstructed urban witches who are like, we got to get this exactly right, and you know, sort of uh, neo gardenerian all that stuff. Like that's all that's all made up in a different way than this. This kind of grew, and then has some made up bits added to it. Well, that other stuff is just made up in a certain way. Yeah, like it's an interesting sort of distinction that you were sort of playing around with there. Yeah. And and it's it's difficult. Yeah, you know, the, I, I totally follow you. I totally follow you. That, you know that, what I'm saying. It's like it's yeah, like when you listen yeah. that, okay, so authenticity is not real. In, I mean that's not no. how culture works. <laughs> the the realness debate isn't real. But that being said, if you listen to like I don't know, country music or hip hop or something like that, you know the real guys from the like fake stuff it's like a it's like a a discernment of like that feels alive that feels real to me that feels like someone's putting on a a performance or something yeah no i i i I totally get it i totally get it and i think it's a beautiful example by the way it's a really beautiful example because the the uh like when you have a piece of culture like that then there might be a little bit of uh, of local cultural lore around it, and that is of course really important. And we can we can look at that and we can take it out and see what does that mean. This is you, you compared this to the Igun Gun uh, masquerading in West Africa, right? That's a really good idea. You know, the, these things are, are, are if that looks similar, this thing about a horse with a skull, those hell horses, that that, that is masquerading that you find around in Northern Europe. There is the um, uh, Welsh tradition of the Marilir. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, uh, but it's also a, a, a masking masquerading with a horse skull you have similar stuff in uh denmark actually where there's these uh, horse figures uh that that are somehow associated and often associated with death so there's a there's a hell horse which is a horse corpse with three legs and these kind wow. of things or uh and there have even been horse sacrifices in very recent times where people would 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 kill and own an, a very old horse as a part of basically honoring these sort of hell or death horse figures. So this is something that can be seen in a context of practice. And it can, and when it can be seen in this kind of a context, it can also be enriched with meaning from these contexts, right? Then, of course, we're moving out of scholarship because one thing is to sit down in, in Dartmoor and, and look at... Uh, what have people actually been saying? What data do we have? That's one way of dealing with that. But what if we want to make the OS alive today, if we want to enrich it mm. with 
as as an animist way of, of, of building land connectedness, for instance, then we need to analyze it with, for instance, with animist scholarship, with history. What is that word, by the way, os? It look, sounds exactly like the word os, which means a um, Nordic deity, right? Os, esir. That oh, would course, be yeah. that would be etymologically os probably in English. I don't know if that's the etymologically etymological root to that. It might not be, but it sounds extremely cognate. Now, the wow. fact that it sounds cognate in itself means that that from a contemporary or from a you say an animist perspective, there is a dialogue potential in that name, right? Mythic reflection does not disregard word similarity just because two words might not be cognate. They might not be. They might be a co- yeah. cognate, right? So the uh, so when I hear the word "os" on a death horse in in uh, in England, I'm immediately like, "Yes, that sounds like Odin," <laughs> because yeah. Well, I, I feel I feel what you're saying. That. And this brings us maybe to the question of alternate ways of knowing, which is something I'd like to talk to you about. Or, or what, you know, yeah. what is a way of knowing? Not, not that this is an unfamiliar term of discourse in academe, but it's, I think, unfamiliar to a lot of non-academic people. But before we get to that, you know, um, this instinct you're talking about is something I talk about in the podcast as esoteric etymology in this very broad sense. And it can be um, something kind of done in a joking way like we find in Plato's Cratylus which is probably our earliest document of this way of approaching language all the way to complete freeform freakout where we see like I think of like the Riza from the Wu-Tang Clan who'd be like yeah but that's the A and the A stands for Adam which is the original man and the original man is Allah and that's the 18 and the 18 like last week it was the 18th. And on that day, my brother came in the house and we did this. And that meant that this, and like, so this kind of free form. So it's not even like referencing the idea of etymology in any way. And there's a whole spectrum in between of, of this approach to like similarities of words, um, resonances across different languages and so on and, and so forth, which is really interesting. I like that you're like, oh, wow, that actually sounds a bit like maybe it's a god sort of thing. It's probably etymologically, and I'm sure this won't surprise you, my, my guess would be it comes from the fact that a, a lot of English dialects drop H's and they just say, os, you know, and yeah. that's it. But but uh, but why not bring in the Aesir to this dialect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? You could, yeah, no, but I think, I think the... Um... No, I, I think actually the, the 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 topic you're taking up here with associative identifications and yeah. pattern thinking, because that's what I really think it is. It's it's almost like it's almost like uh, divination. If you're looking at the stars, then you're seeing at some at something which might, you know, be chaotic somehow. But then the brain will kind of suck patterns out of that. Or if you look in tea leaves in the bottom of a, a cup or something like that. That might, from one perspective, be a chaotic pattern that's formed, but the brain will uh, will suck something out of it somehow. And I think that what I'm trying to do is, in some way, to move in that direction of playful associative thinking. But then I'm also cautious because it's very easy. Stuff can easily become bullshit, you know? <laughs> and, where do you, and where do you draw the bullshit line? That's yeah. the question. Like yeah. somewhere between Plato and the Riza, there's a line yeah. of bullshit. And I, yeah. you know, um, yeah. if I listen to some Trumpies online, 
talking about why the you know the book of revelations is clearly about joe biden and he and and that using this kind of because the word this appears in the revelations in the english translation right that they all assume you know that's the book of revelations uh and it says beast and if you count up the numbers of beast it's biden and you know whatever that's not a real example but it's the sort of thing i my bullshit detector goes off at full volume yeah yeah come on like stop it but yeah then i'm kind of feeling this this thing so where do you draw the line of bullshit let's yeah. talk about what a way of knowing is because yep you know when you're talking about this associative thinking analogical thinking this is precisely what uh edward tyler or uh fraser the other great inventor of primitive religion in the sort of anthropological literature <laughs> they would say that's what characterizes the most primitive form this is actually magical thinking right You've maybe got a development from magic to religion to science in Fraser. I think in Tyler, it's sort of animism to religion to science. Quite similar ideas. So if if I put it to you that you are embracing primitive ways of thinking, you know, (laughs) what's your response to that? (laughs) Did you just call me primitive, sir? I did, yes. <laughs> cool. Yeah. No, I think... Well, I think... The because the, impor- the reason I ask, sorry to interrupt, like, the, you know, people have their, their bullshit detectors and they also have often a, what I think is a very salutary uh, reaction to what is often termed woo, you know, yeah. like just kind of dumb, vapid, like mystical yeah. thinking, right? Yeah. And they might be going like, what, what? alternate ways of knowing like what are you talking about you yeah. know so yeah, yeah. So that's what i'm talking and about and i think i think basically i also think we have a political predicament around this because a lot of associative thinking is being used to say problematic stuff that means that there's a lot of people like scholars for instance who will sort of retract into okay so we only have this way of knowing because then at least we know we know we're not ending in, ending in the arms of some like absolutely insane idea that it's probably Hillary Clinton probably has a global cannibal sex cult going or something like that right so however i would say that i think we need to to move out of our analytical safe spaces and try to to think with say, associative or mythic ways of thinking. Now, these are ways of knowing, ways more than sometimes, more than they're just content of knowing, right? When I'm, when I'm think, when I made that suggestion of reading the us as us, that is an associative move that I'm making there. And I can do that and saying, well, that's me dialoguing with it. It doesn't mean, like, if I move and I uh, say, Say, oh, I'm doing this because my grandfather taught me, and his grandfather taught him, and all that time, all the way back to the uh, to the Vikings or something like that. Then I've created rampant pseudo history, right? Something that directly conflicts with um, what any scholar that could tie his own shoelaces would say. But it's something about those ways of thinking, and I sometimes like I'm I'm sort of inspired by this Aboriginal Australian scholar named uh, Tyson Junker Porter, who's who's talking about how to, for instance, weave mythology into our age, and I think that I actually think that 
creates good concepts to think with stuff like this. What is mythology? So if I give you a description of that uh, riot that happened in Boston at the emergence of the American Revolution, I can make a historical description of that. What if I make a narrative where I say the first man who got shot there was a white man, the second man was a black man? So the the the, the, the African Americans they are part of the emergent moment of the uh, active part of the of the American state, and they shed their blood in that moment. Then I'm creating a mythology, right? right. I'm creating a, a story that's supposed to to build relation in the world. It's supposed to to say. These, this group of people are legitimate, uh, fully legitimate participators in this state because I want to I wanna use a piece of history to create a mythic story. So you see, um, there's, a, there's a history description, but then there's a, what I would call a mythic aspect to it. I would define that mythic aspect as the aspect with which a narrative or description creates relation, right? Got it. So to stay with the American example, if you tell a story about America as a land of freedom, yeah, right, that is a myth that is supposed to, its, its function is to create relation between some people. It might even have that function when the actual concrete American state doesn't necessarily live up to its own ideals, you know, somehow. Yeah. And part of what I think we can, we, we can, we should do is to work actively with mythology. When I'm talking about the Ragnarok and the, the Völuspá's prophecy of eco-apocalypse, I'm connecting to one specific scholar, a Swedish archaeologist named Bo Greslund, who has developed this idea of, of the Ragnarok myth as built on the experience of climate change. I'm connecting that with some other scholars. But what I'm doing when I'm serving the story, a prophecy of climate change, is that I'm weaving a myth I'm yeah. not giving you 19 different scholars who say different things about that. Many of them would disagree with Bo Greslund that it has anything to do with climate change and they would be annoyed at it, you know, in some way or other. Uh, so you see, so I'm, I'm, I, I th and I think that, well, at least from, the, from my position as a scholar, it feels right. Now, on the one hand, it feels necessary, it feels urgent to be able to make this, and it feels right also to be able to do it in ways that doesn't uh, just r run freewheeling completely away from scholarship, if you follow. Does that, I, does that make sense? It makes sense. I've, I can kind of vibe with it, but then it's all down to kind of individual judgment because a lot of people might take... Well, like for example, to take the, the kind of material you work in, so traditional um, Norse pre-Christian religion, um, a load of people would say, yes, we need to reintegrate this with our modern roots because, to take one example, which I know you encounter in your um, work, because we are the, the true Aryan Nordic race and uh, Christianity is a Jewish you know, conspiracy thing that's like trying to like colonize our culture. So even importing, even like making use of post-colonial rhetoric and discourse for the purpose of a kind of neo-Nazi agenda. Uh, we are victims, we are being genocided, blah, blah, blah. And um, hence Thor and Odin, cultural purity, 
whatever our ideas of a kind of mythical traditional past is and and that be like that's a that's a myth uh it's a very powerful myth it's a myth that a lot of people believe in one version of or another you know um but my feeling is you're going to say that's not what i'm talking about that's not what i think we need to be doing so um, how how no. do you distinguish from a kind of rigorous perspective what those guys are doing with what you're trying to do um i think i i think my distinction would probably be that if you are i think it would be methodologically rest uh, based in what animism is and how indigenous knowledge actually works and also decolonial perspectives on how these sort of narratives has emerged. Because I think that these kinds of narratives that are a huge problem, I think part of their function is actually to prevent kind, decent Euro-descendant people from moving away from modernity. Because if you move, if you want to move away from modernity, then you are going to approach notions of whiteness that are militant. It's almost as if whiteness is sort of curving in on itself. So if you move towards its borders, borders, it's intensifying and scaring you back into whiteness, right? So it, and so, and that is why uh, people are then encased in Euro-modernity, which is an important part of whiteness, right? Now, that means that that all these kind of insane racist ideas that are in many ways co-opting uh, aspects of uh, traditional culture, traditional knowledge, that they they function actually as a as a counter image to uphold whiteness you see the, and I, I i know this is complex what i'm saying here and i think about this as the defining complex of whiteness okay so if you want to move into an actual animist way of knowing uh then stuff like or a notion like connectivity would play a central role right it would play a central role and it would there would be a criticism of uh, entropic ways of building community in that there would be uh, dynamism and change in it. I even think that cultural exchange and mixing would take up an important role. If you look at the, um, uh, the Norwegian, medieval Norwegian laws, you see that they are adamant about banning people from one specific kind of practice, which was called in Old Norse, uh, Finfara, faring to the Finns, or fara at Finmarker spuria spa, going to the Finns to to acquire the sight. Now the Finns in Old Norse that means the Sami. Yeah. So that means that there was that that people were in cultural exchange with adjacent cultural groups. Of course. And that relation was important. If you look at like you are uh, an esotericism scholar, if you look at European history of esotericism, you see explosively connective ways of trying to build, build knowledge. From the first moment that Kabbalah is invent, invented down there in, in Spain, yeah. non-Jewish Europeans are in such an intense cultural exchange with those ways of knowing. Yeah. And like with Platonicism, you've been talking about on this podcast, going back to the Orientalist platonicism and all these things so 
these are ways of thinking that are in their in their core strongly oppositional to, for instance, uh, white supremacists' ways of knowing. And this is also why. Sorry, I know I'm talking a lot here now. (laughs) This is also why that dealing with this stuff, approaching this stuff, implies dealing with it. It implies facing up to stuff like, for instance, the way that the national romanticist notions of Vikings have been constructed into an idea of essential whiteness that is, uh, you know, dense with ultra-masculine colonialism and all these kind of things. And so the path that is mapped out by approaching these things that these Nazis are also using is dense with analytical realizations and political, politically charged material and realizations. Word. Does that make sense? It makes it. There's a lot there. There's a lot of kind of richness in what you've just said that would maybe need unpacking for an hour on its own to really get to the points. But um, what I'm taking away from it in, in a, nutshell tell me what you think of this you know if you're approaching let's say pre-christian norse culture and trying to somehow bring it into your life you cannot have you cannot do that with a within a framework of cultural purity because cultural purity did not exist i mean cultural purity is probably more like a protestant idea than anything else right um the 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 norse the so-called vikings the norse of the viking era for example, were part of the reason they were going up the Volga and stuff like that is to get wives who were all Slavic women. And there's even been some recent, you know, genetic uh, work done on, on, I think, the Swedish population or the Norwegian population showing, like, oh, these guys are all part Slavic. I wonder how that happened. So these guys weren't into some like cultural purity stuff. And maybe that is, that brings us back perhaps to connective ways of thinking, animist ways of thinking, horizontal engaging with a horizontal world of life and individual persons in the world around you rather than let us caricature a protestant vertical god individual human saved or not saved that's kind of all you need to know type vibe where even angels aren't really real maybe satan maybe satan is but angels uh, you know like um demon demons and satan are real but so it's like a kind of perverted animism in a way a dark animism. Um, does that yeah. does that make sense? Like this, it, it, maybe that idea of cultural purity, with all the kind of baggage it brings, is the key. Is a key factor in in whether this this is what you might call appropriation of Norse material or trying to live it in a in a in a different way that isn't appropriation. I, you've talked about this idea of cultural appropriation, I think, very lucidly in one of your YouTube episodes to which we'll link because it's a really tough one because all cultures do all day long is appropriate stuff from each other and anytime we say this is a culture we, we sort of draw a line around it we're just it's it's like the way the middle east was carved up after world war one it's just some some dudes drawing lines and go up oh, there it is and then there's these these actual fluid networks of humans who kind of are like what there's no border here what are you talking about so that's how cultures are they're flowing into each other all the time we're by we're grooving off each other's stuff all the time. And it might be that the a part of the what appropriation is, because as you say in your video, it's really hard to define and it's really kind of dangerous and can get into, can just, just jettison you straight into the hell of identity stuff, right? Mm. Uh, which is not where anyone really wants to be, I hope. 
the internet would say otherwise, but... Uh, um, <laughs> it's funny that the internet is so identitarian. It's like the internet ideology of, of a hard day. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, maybe because it's easy to hashtag, you know. Or maybe it's because maybe it's a counter reaction to the internet being very connective. Yeah. And then the, the tendency of mirror cabinets have a tendency to basically grow identitarianisms. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's probably a really valuable insight, actually. The internet is a giant wild west, which in theory includes the entire world, right? And whoa, where do we stand in this? Okay, well, let's define where we stand. We are the blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, so I like what you're saying. I think when you're talking about a way of knowing that is fundamentally different from, in some ways at least, a, an academic analytic way of knowing, which is what you're talking about. But we're talking about it in the terms, to some degree, of academic, analytic ways of thinking. It is a case where I can tell you about it, but, you know, if you want to know what I'm talking about, you got to do it. you got to start thinking this way, right? So this isn't something that we've, we've magically accessed in this conversation, an, an animist way of thinking, by saying the words. And so that is going to be a, a necessary limitation on our conversation, you know? Yeah. There's actually one thing I want to say about this whole thing about ways of knowing in relation to animism. And that is a kind of, I think, absolutely vital addition to how we understand animism that comes from the Norwegian philosopher Arne Johan Vetlesen. So he's into panpsychism, the philosophical idea that consciousness is, is dispersed throughout reality. And he defines anim his definition of animism is interesting. He says, animism is panpsychism in practice, in practice. And I think that's something that a lot of the, the kind of the new animists scholarship and Cambridge School ontological turn and all that crew has tended to overlook a little bit that if there isn't a practice, then it might not actually be animism. And the practice is really, really, really important. And for me, it seems so evident, partly because I did my, my, a lot of my research with Afro-Brazilian religion, where <clears throat> these people, they operate from that basis. They basically tell you, don't talk about things, just do them. Yeah. And if you ask about something, why do you put leaves on top of that drum before the ritual? Then they will tell you stuff like, because it is really important. They will give you a complete non-answer because they don't want to talk about uh, meaning content in relation to their spiritual practice. Now, this is why when we talk about ways of knowing, they are practicing ways of knowing where different components of meaning on the same, on the same issue can be in, in, in radical opposition to each other, Right. So you have the, the war god Ugun is dancing with a, a sweeping move of the arm that is sort of chopping. That can mean both Ugun clearing the ground with his machete for human civilization or Ugun going berserk and cutting down a whole village in a myth. Right. So there's both his most destructive and his most creative, productive aspects are unified in that so if you don't talk about stuff like that, this kind of polyvalence is allowed to be there and this permeates ritual reality. Now, that is a way of knowing that is in there and it's difficult to move into it in talking like we're doing now. And that's why when you talk about moving into animist practice, I'm trying to, to give people things to do. Say, let's put on these masks and run around in Copenhagen on the solstice. Let's wave this flag 
here is a book with things you can do on Christmas Eve. Because in a sense, like I often use this example, uh, the, uh, the gnome or the elf. What does a gnome or the elf want the most? Does it want you to believe in him or does it want a, a bowl of beer? Well, he wants the bowl of beer more than the belief. Yeah, he he. It's not that he doesn't necessarily doesn't give a shit about your belief. I think he probably would like to you to believe that he's actually there. But if he he's given the choice, I'm pretty sure that he would pre- prefer the the bowl of beer. And the philosophical reason for that is that uh, Vettelson's idea that it's in the practice that animism is actually realized. Word, my friend, great anthropologist Jenny Butler, shout out works on fairy belief, among other things. She's Irish and comes from a very fairy-haunted part of Ireland. And uh, she's found in her fieldwork that the Irish nowadays tend to be like, no, we don't believe in the fairies. They're not real. But if you then ask them doing fieldwork, do you ever leave out a bowl of milk for the fairies? Yes. Better safe than sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, we, we do that. We do the thing. We just don't think they're real, right? So that's an interesting example of that. But she went to Newfoundland in the great northern frosty wastes of Canada and talked to people there. And they were like, no, the fairies are real. So <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's interesting how these, things, how these things work. But that emphasis on practice, I think, is spot on. I like also how we're, we're suddenly into the respectable face of animism in, in academic philosophy, which is panpsychism. Yeah, <laughs> the idea that that is being discussed now and has been for a few decades now, I think, by the driest of dry analytic Anglo-American style philosophers as basically the only philosophically valid way to save materialism. You have to have panpsychism. Now, this stuff is not talking about elves or angels or anything like that. But um, there, there is, as our Norwegian friend has pointed out, there's a real crossover there waiting to occur. Yeah, I feel, in a sense, I feel that it is as if Western the history of thinking is ha, has come to a point of thinking like, oh shit, perhaps the indigenous peoples were right all along. There is, in fact, a, a, a spirit in the tree. It was just our concepts of subjectivity and agency that were a little bit too reductive. But when we calibrate, then we can actually start uh, even academically engaging spirits theurgy as an academic discipline how about that dude and i in a sense i think that's what i'm trying to do i in my heart of hearts i call this individuation studies basically the 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 uh the, the scholarly scholarly study of how to engage and approach other than human subjectivity i think it's in with the theory uh, and the methodologies that are available today i think it's a fully possible alley to take and I think it's the practice that makes it problematic. Um, How so? A lot of these, because it would feel a little bit weird for many contemporary scholars painting big pentacles on the floor and starting to uh, invoke uh, Balsaboop in the basement, right? As, as a part of an academic field of, of investigation. And I think it's also why, like many of the ontological turn thinkers, when they talk about this, they would tend to say stuff like, well, dividuation of porous uh, extendable subjectivities are uh, possible on the basis of a relational ontology, which is pretty much basically a very, very anti-funky way of saying trolls exist, right? 
So part of part of uh, part of my problem is that I insist on on saying trolls exist, <laughs> and uh, and that's that's it's 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 socially uh, inappropriate. Yeah, uh, it would have been better if I if I used <laughs> used their kind of language. Um, I, but I love that you're bringing that out into the open. You know, one thing that is very true. It's the um, not very well kept secret about the history of. Western esotericism, but I'd say history more generally. On the academic stage, everyone is meant to kind of adopt a certain, let's call it post-enlightenment set of preconceptions as a kind of common ground that we all agree on, or at least we agree that we all agree on them. Whether they actually match is another question. But everyone, in some way or another, is doing uh, some pentagrams in the basement. Uh, yeah, this yeah is- I love I love that. I, I I mean, thank you for saying this, brother. Like the fact that it, it's that's like the real conspiracy of our time. We all know them. I'm not going to mention their names, but in fact, all all these guys who are sitting around in the universities and all of Northern Europe studying esotericism, they're esotericists themselves. Yes, but it's- but I don't even want to ghettoize it to them. They are. That's true. Yeah, but. Yeah. But it's true of just all academic. I mean, maybe maybe Richard Dawkins doesn't do a pentagram in his basement, you know. But he <laughs> probably doesn't. <laughs> but but I bet you he still uh, has some weird kind of custom stuff he does that's part of his English upbringing that doesn't really make sense. And he probably you know has a cup of tea at, at the same time every day because that's what he does. So he's still operating within a cultural matrix of stuff that doesn't have a kind of rational explanation. And that's what we all live in. And yeah, yeah. pentagram can or he has a lucky exception. sock that he always puts on. It doesn't <laughs> smell so good anymore, more, but I don't know. Yeah, he might, he might well have that. So this is a methodological point that we need to take seriously. If you're studying the history of astrology, which is something that I'm really not educated in at all but for the purposes of the podcast i've had to get into it because you absolutely cannot understand the the intellectual history of the west writ really broadly without understanding astrology it's impossible so i've had to talk to specialists who actually get this stuff now if you want to get to people who actually get hellenistic astrology like the old school stuff and all the different philosophical flavors of that and the ways it intersects with science and the ways it intersects with religion, etc. The only people who have put in the time are astrologers. Because yeah. we're talking about an yeah. insanely complex body of knowledge. And again, practice is key. You cannot understand astrology without doing tons of horoscopes. You know, because you just see how it works. You just get how it works. So the only people I can talk to about this stuff, there may be a, there may be an astrology scholar out there who's of the the top grade, who really understands this stuff, who thinks it's absolute bullshit. That's possible, but I haven't met that person. The people I know who, who work on astrology, who are credible are some, in some way, deeply invested in astrology. We're not talking about the low grade newspaper type stuff. We're talking about this kind of whole symbolic system of knowledge, which is has one foot in science and one foot in something else. And that's a methodological problem maybe, because if we agree that we're historians of ideas and we need to kind of do our very best to write the history of what people used to think in a way that isn't bringing our modern presuppositions to them. So, you know, getting as close as possible to a snapshot of what things were actually like in the past, which is this sort of unattainable Mm -hmm. dream of scholarship. We need to really understand astrology. And the only yeah. way to do that is to talk to some astrologers. Yeah. No, I think it's a really good point you're making there. And and I think you, you like like I've I was academically 
formed in, in a context where the the the, the limit between uh, uh, scholarship and emic involvement was considered uh, like so unbreakable, uh, and I always broke it. Like when I started studying, I was uh, I was part of these sort of groups of students who we kind of counter acculturated ourselves uh, by studying this Danish esoteric occultists uh, named Erwin Neutschke Wolf. Uh, whose writings a lot of you know young students of of history of religions uh, kind of immersed in in, in the nineties, uh, and I feel that like there are different ways of knowing, and scholarship produces like scholarship is beautiful and it's powerful, and when it's well performed, sometimes uh, it, it 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 can it's so rich, but just moving a little bit outside scholarship can be extremely enriching and also reflect back into scholarship, actually. Because you, when you change your perspective on something, then you get a new kind of information. And I, I feel that, in like in my work with Nordic animism, I feel that I've seen this in extremely concrete ways where the fact that I'm moving into a uh, more dialoguing, associative ways of knowing, that is giving insights that can be taken back into scholarship and they can produce fully valid scholarship, but you couldn't find them from scholarship. Um, so, so I think that the, the movement in and outside of, of ways of knowing is in itself sort of, I almost used Gershom Scholem's uh, expression here, pregnant with infinite meaning. <laughs> the, the Kabbalistic sign is pregnant. No, it isn't. It isn't pregnant with infinite meaning, but it's, it's, um, it's a rich, it's, it has potential for insight, I think. Mm. And we're all doing it anyway. That's the thing. We just have to admit it. You know, you've talked about the relationship to what you're doing and in an email, and you said, I see this as kind of part of somehow esoteric, what you're doing. What is the relationship between it and um, esotericism, esotericism or Western esotericism as a construct? Well, I think, well, I think the, the, um, the, the framing of the contemporary study of esotericism as uh, Walter Hanegraaff is, is outlining it, I think that is basically a, a I think it's, it, it has the potential for a rather deep decolonizing, actually. I think he might even say this himself, of uh, the Western knowledge hierarchy. And the whole idea of rejected knowledge and that the forms of knowing that are rejected tend to be the cosmotheist forms of knowing. Now, I wouldn't use the term cosmotheist, monotheism, divide myself. I, I, I don't think it's so good. Uh, but similar concepts are being used by other scholars in other fields. And the basic thing, I think, is good, that there is, there is a connective mode of cosmology and there is a distinction based mode of cosmology and the distinction based mode of cosmology has had this capacity to link with political power in specific ways which means that it has worked to reject the uh, connective modes of cosmology and this is also why you see stuff like the protestant idea of of uh, the sacred uh, or the uh, the holy ghost uh, evolving into volksgeist or culture or spirit and these sort of things these are distinction based ways of thinking and i think that insight that basic insight of esotericism is 
at the roots of decolonizing our knowledge system in the West. And in a sense, I think the distinction between what we've been talking about here as folklore and esotericism is probably a little bit of an artificial thing that is sort of more linked in with institutional inertia. What do you happen to be studying at some point? Then it is actually sort of a, a necessarily always a good category to implement on the world. Agreed. If you look at contemporary folkloric ideas, you'll find that they are deeply informed by esotericism. You find that a, that a thing such as spiritism, which is an extremely important esoteric movement, is, define, is very defining for folklore. It might also be linked with folklore in its emergence. If you look at important Nordic esoteric figures, such as uh, Johann Burius, for instance, uh, he was the absolutely wonderful, uh, crazy figure in the history of Sweden. Who He was one of the first runologists. People uh -huh. work on runes. And he was completely into alchemy and Kabbalah. And, and, and so he was just tripping on runes with uh, alchemy and Kabbalah thinking. Um, and so he was, a, he was an esotericist. And, 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 but the material that he was working with was folklore. He went out in the villages and talked to uh, old men who were telling him about these stuff. And then he went home and his little study in Uppsala and he wrote about it and, and, and so on. So I think the distinction or the, the, at least the, the, there are, there are very blurred lines probably between what we call esotericism and what we call uh, folklore. And it's possible that you have a gazillion examples of that. If you talk about Jamblichus, who meets uh, the god Eros, who jumps up of a, out of a sacred well uh, and these sort of things, is this folklore or is it some intellectual thing going on inside right. his head? Right. Uh, well, that that's really interesting because we can see how the intellectual disciplines are constantly uh, trying to kind of put up a wall between the real stuff and the folklore. Um, you got in the, the scholarship of Yamdukus this very strong distinction drawn by people like E.R. Dodds, who's a great classicist scholar who was uh, a president of the Society for Psychical Research. He hung out with a lot of modernist, occultist-type dudes. He was not uninterested in the oogly-boogly side of things. He was an Irishman. He had that kind of Irish-Celtic vibe, you know. And he says, look, Plotinus, who doesn't go in for any of that kind of stuff, for the most part. I know Plotinus scholars who want to bring theurgy back into Plotinus. I hear you. I'm with you. But for the sake of keeping things simple, Plotinus, he's not really a ritualist. He's very much looking at a kind of contemplative, experiential, but not ritual approach to uh, unity, theosis, uh, self-divinization, and so on. Jamblichus, on the other hand, wants to bring in all the folklore. He wants to bring in the the yunks and ritual implements and wokis magica, like, like sort of magic words uh, that you say that have power, but he's going to justify how that works philosophically, the whole thing. And so E.R. Dodd says, well... You had in Plotinus the last gasp of true Hellenic rationalism, followed by the decadence of Jamblichus, who's <laughs> no longer doing philosophy, right? So it's like yeah. Dodds is going like, keep the folklore out. He's trying to build yeah. that wall. And it's an interesting wall to build because although Plotinus doesn't spend any time trying to justify 
ritual act praxis. That's not what he's writing. I mean, Yamblichus writes a book specifically devoted to that. Nevertheless, one, you know, he's he's hanging out at temples and, you know, maybe not making sacrifices because he's of these sort of like veg- vegetarian school of late antique uh, neo-Pythagorean philosophers. But existing in his polytheist, super messed up Mediterranean culture at Rome, he's not. it's not like he's going like, I will not go to the temple, you know, none of that as mm-hmm. far as we can tell. So he's still doing that stuff, but he doesn't make a point of it. Anyway, like the the way that a uh, history of ideas discipline like classics will police the line between, you know, Hellenic rationalism, which often is also kind of something that gets reappropriated by various modern European groups is like, ah, and we, that's the origin of our stuff. You know, we are the, the true heirs of the, that's why you have the Parthenon on the Euro, you know, like versus all that other dirty magic, um, folklore, illiterate, savage, primitive stuff that we want to kind of get rid of or we say we want to get rid of. Yeah. And I think that policing that you're talking about there, that is an incredibly, incredibly rich contribution of, uh, of uh, esotericism scholarship to, uh, to uh, Western culture. I mean, I actually think I first, I kind of heard the name Hanegraaff, but I, I first really actually got familiar with his thinking actually on your podcast here where he was where he was uh, describing and i remember just thinking no this can't like this is like conspiracy theory just for real man like this whole story about uh, jakob johann brücker who was basically defining the tectonics of western thought for both retrospectively and for our time, and nobody knows his name, and it's like that is—it's such an amazing insight that's being that's being given there, and how these—the fact that this is so unknown—it also tells you something about how the, the very deep impactors in in some sense then is that it almost make you think so is Platon like a figurehead of or something like that of Johan Brueck no I'm I'm exaggerating now right but it, it just seemed so incredibly important and insightful and from if you couple this way of thinking with contemporary indigenous scholarship, such as uh, the Maori scholar Linda Tuiwai Smith, who's thinking about the establishment of colonial knowledge hierarchies, and they're deconstructing that, and they're thinking about their own ways of knowing, then I think these these two it's two different disciplines or fields, but they are to such an extent working on the same. So, uh, so I'm, I'm I'm very fascinated. I haven't actually studied esotericism a lot, but I'm, I'm uh, I think it is very rich with insight in how also how patterns of domination, probably political domination, has emerged in in the Western world in the ways that they have. This and is- also, yeah, let me say another thing. Like, there's this trend today to ascribe esotericism sort of a lot of bad stuff and. I have no doubt that there is loads of Euro exceptionalism and misogyny and uh, proto-Nazism and master race thinking from Blavatsky and all kinds of stuff going on in, in esotericism. But the thing is, that's also going on in normative ways of knowing. Like, why do we tend to pin... Like, whose knowledge do you think has affected more brutality in the world? Darwin 
or Alistair Crawley. You know, it, it, I don't think that the normative knowledge crew has much of a course to point bad stuff at the at the rejected knowledge crew, actually, when we look at... But there is a bit of a tendency to pin all the evil stuff on the rejected knowledge forms. And if you look at the rejected knowledge forms through history, then you also see that, that they, they're intensely connective. They're traditions of cultural resilience. So they're trying to link with structures of power all the time in so many ways. Yeah. So even back from the time when early Christian church uh, adopted late Platonic thinking and so on going on all the way all to today where you have mindfulness meditation being uh, you know performed by company leaders uh, yeah. in order to avoid taking responsibility for overworking their employees you know um, yeah i see exactly what you're what you're saying i hope this this comes through there is a, a very strong discourse, and I've never traced it. I think the man to talk about it might be um, the, the great scholar of Aleister Crowley, Marco Pazzi, actually, because he works a lot on modern uh, esoteric currents in Europe and really, really knows his stuff. But how the idea of the, the whole category of rejected knowledge, occult stuff, gets associated with, for example... Umberto Eco's famous, very influential, I think, article on Urfascismus, like the idea that there's a kind of fundamental fascist way of thinking. I should say here that Eco is not at all sympathetic with fascism. He thinks it sucks. Um, he's Italian, so he has very good reason to think it sucks. And he thinks there's a kind of irrationalism that can kind of creep into and pervert a, an assumed normative way of thinking, which is a kind of roughly enlightenment, you know, materialist worldview. And when it comes, fascism is soon to follow. Now, this is very interesting for a number of reasons. One, Echo is like totally fascinated by this stuff. Uh, if you read his many works, but especially Foucault's Pendulum, you realize he's like, I mean, Foucault's Pendulum is like a love letter to occultism, really. <laughs> you know, this novel. Uh, and in many ways, a very sensitive and sympathetic reader of this stuff. Like he, he writes an exposition of the Lullian art, which I think is the most perceptive one I've ever read. But he, he says this leads to fascism. So there's this thing in modern European history where you have this uh, ro political romanticism, I guess you call it, which got taken up in the 1930s and ended up with this very spasmodic 1940s like World War freak out where many battle lines were being drawn and constantly shifting, but these were big battle lines. These were like civilizational discourses, democracy versus totalitarianism, the people versus the, the Jews, like all this kind of stuff. And that association between the kind of irrational ways of knowing, irrational systems of thought, pseudoscience, right? And the norm, which is always shifting, has, has really stuck so that one of the things you get is this sort of occult equals Nazi from a normative mm. perspective. Yeah. And, and that you cannot deny there are many <clears throat> occult Nazis. Like if you, <laughs> I think occult Nazi is probably a thing. Mm. It's a, it's it a thing in fiction, is. right? So there's this whole yeah. idea of like the Nazis on the moon and stuff like this kind of fictional occult Nazis back in the 1930s going to Agartha to try to find the Tibetan master race, you know, all that stuff. But there's also modern people who themselves kind of pattern themselves after that fictional image. Like, we are the occult yeah. Nazis. We're the Ariosophists or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't follow that 
sorry, just to complete my rant, it doesn't follow that that Eurofascism thing is at all correct. And especially work on the origins of socialism, which you might think of as the opposite, right? That socialism, we are materialist, we believe in, we don't even really, we believe in a kind of deterministic world. The origins of European socialism are deeply occult, deeply religious, deeply often esoteric Christian, you know. This is the, the actual historical reality. Awesome consideration there. And <clears throat> I totally follow you. Like, it always bothers me that Umberto Eco's definition of urfascism as a romanticist and critical of modernity is quoted so much as if it's just the sort of truth, because it's so evidently wrong. Like, th there is no question that romanticist thinkers have been extremely progressive. If you look at uh, like the American School of Anthropology, which is an extremely influential and important train of thinking in the early 20th century, these were romanticists. They sprung from romanticist thinking and they were so progressive that nothing British or Fran French anthropology could come up with at the time would, you know, measure to the level of inclusivity that these uh, people were producing. I would argue that important parts of contemporary sort of identity politics, sort of woke ideology is rooted in this romanticist tradition. It also has its problems because identitarianism sometimes flow out of that stuff. But this is just to say that the, the idea that romanticism and criticizing modernity is essentially fascist. I don't think it makes any sense. It would make any Inuit queer activist into a proto uh, an ur, ur fascist. Right. It doesn't make any sense. And even if you look at, at Nazism, now this is not something I've studied in detail, so somebody might correct me here, but even if you look at Nazism, is occultism really the rule of how Nazism was performed and how it, like, what parts of the Third Reich were actually the ones responsible for this incredible atrocity? Was it uh, Guido von Liszt and Jörg Lanz and, and, and all that stuff? Or was it also Darwinism and uh, modernity and progress and these kind of things? American uh, eugenics. Yeah. Eugenics. You, of course. You said it, man. And so. If you look at Nazism, that is probably even a little bit of a historic exception if you look at very cruel movements in the fact that a rejected knowledge form actually reached so high. If you look at, at, uh, if you look at other examples of fascism and the King Leopold in Belgium and, and, and some, of the, some of the sort of Stalinist and Pol Pot and, and these sort of strongly, strongly modernist uh, movements – they they don't have probably don't have any element of occultism in it. So first, occultism and Nazism is probably a little bit of an overexposed exception. Second, how much did eugenics and Darwinism? What role did that play? So I think the pinning on this idea of pinning historical cruelty on esoteric rejected forms of knowledge, I think it is part of collaborating on Johann Brücker's old project of maintaining these ways of knowing rejected. And you can see how this is being rehatched in our own time today. So, for instance, the QAnon shaman, who this was an image that was seen worldwide. Everybody knows this image of this weirdly carnivalesque clownish figure there who looks sort of heathen animist kind of style. Yeah. But isn't he actually wasn't isn't he actually an icon of something that was actually a bit of an evangelist revival movement? I think he was, wasn't he? Why are nobody saying that? Now, the reason that the international media will 
latched onto this exotifying carnivalesque image is because it already appeals. There isn't a conspiracy. It's not like they're talking about it behind the scenes or anything, but it's because it, it already appeals to pre-existing notions. Now, the pre-existing notions that it appeals to is the idea of the animist as barbaric and childish at the same time. The QAnon shaman is perfect. He's a fascist involved in New Age. That is fascism, New Age. That's barbarism and, and, and childishness in the same go. So he's, he's a perfect icon to make into an image of, of the animist other, to uh, reinvent this really ancient, actually, rejection pattern of pushing specific kinds of ways of knowing out from the ex field of what is acceptable in, in uh, your ascendant spaces. So this is very interesting because I think you and I both are not members of QAnon. I think that's safe to say. But... <laughs> What is the methodological distinction? Because as as you know, I interviewed Koko von Strohrad, a very uh, important scholar of Western esotericism, very early in the podcast. And one of the things he's you know come to do is just not really think Western esotericism is a very good paradigm to work in anymore. One of the reasons being um, the the rejected knowledge model, uh, which Hanukkah argues very very well in his book um, Esotericism in the Academy. But in a historicist, specific case study of the influence of Bruckner through the German and Anglo and French intellectual worlds, it's very specific to Western Europe, is what I'm saying, and, and modern, the modern period. But Koku, looking at a much broader sweep, is like, you know, this rejected knowledge thing doesn't work at all. Do we, do we want to describe American evangelical fundies as Western esotericism? No, it doesn't seem to work from a vibe perspective. But they are rejected. They're in theory, their knowledge is rejected. They they deny evolution. They're like creationists. They believe a whole bunch of other stuff that the normative culture as a whole uh, thinks is wrong or even crazy. And then when you get into QAnon, you really do get the crazy. You just get you know complete barking mad contrafactual. Like there are these giant systems of tunnels underneath the the United States, full of pedophiles running around like raping babies. <laughs> like this, you know, and it's all literally true. This kind of thinking, which. Uh, it's just, it strains credulity, let us say. I mean, that's rejected knowledge. And this brings us to the Q shaman. So if we're trying to reject the Q shaman, if we're like a major American uh, media, uh, the lamestream media, <laughs> trying to reject, well, I mean, these guys did kind of try to overthrow the US government. So the, the mainstream is obviously going <laughs> to react against that and be like, let's find the most clownish idiot among these guys, the Q shaman, and put him everywhere and be like, so all of QAnon is to be rejected. It's, it's a really interesting strategy. I can see where it comes from. But lying behind that guy, as you say, is all these kind of small evangelical churches in America where the preacher happens to be a conspiracy QAnon sort of arguably neo-fascist, you know, depending on your definition, uh, a theocratic thinking American Christian who, who, you know, is like politically organized, like we need a Christian nation, this sort of thing, um, what they sometimes call Christian nationalism. Those guys are equally outside the mainstream, arguably, but you don't use them as the image with which to discredit the whole QAnon movement. You use the guy with the horns, mm. who is sort yeah. of like a cross between a Wagner opera Viking and a Native American gestalt-like mm. image, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I, I think that you know the reason behind this is almost 
you know, explicit in, in what you're saying, that, that the evangelist Christianity is is closer tied in with power. Yes. And if we take this form of Christianity and we think about it in relation to uh, Hanegraaff's idea of cosmotheist or monotheist, what I would call a relational versus a distinction-based cosmology, then that is probably in many ways leaning towards a very distinction-based cosmology. That means that it's, it, it is less, in a sense, it is less in conflict with uh, larger patterns of, of power. Uh, I think part of the reason that everybody are very angry at New Age, or many people are very angry at New Age, is there's also bad stuff in New Age and appropriation and all these things. But I think the, the root reason is that New Age is the first time in history that esotericism is, is becoming a broad popular movement. And that means that New Age is posing a new threat to the the, uh, the distinction-based cosmologies that are underlying the way that that, that power is being performed by states and, and so on. And this is the reason that we are getting this sort of new agey, uh, heathen-like, weird gestalt, as you call it, that that is the image that we are being given and not an image of a uh, an, an evangelist priest in his suit who's who's looking all, all nice and, and, and well-combed. It is it is a QAnon shaman who who sort of iconizes to people the threat against the, the what you would call the distinction based world order. Mm. And so, that's because he, he looks more esoteric than the pastor. Yeah, totally. He looks more esoteric. Uh, you know, scholars of esotericism would would jump down both our throats and be like, "What do you mean historically?" Blah, blah, blah. But like, I get what you mean there. Yeah, that makes sense. And and listeners to this podcast will get that kind of. The, the vibe, the the esoteric. Now, maybe vibe. it was a weird thing to say. I don't, I don't know how you look esoteric, but but uh, well, he looks new age, yeah. heathenish, paganish kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he looks wacky. Rune Yarnu, what would you give that out of ten? <laughs> uh, Five. Uh, let me give it a seven. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the Schwepp. I really appreciate it for bringing in all these anthropological, cultural, lived practice-based ideas to our sometimes dry-as-dust uh, exposition and stay esoteric. 